please. The past few weeks we've been studying critical issues in something that has been for the last, one would say, for a hundred years, a challenge to Torah and Tzvot. The realm of science, of course, is very expansive and affects us on a daily basis. One cannot avoid the topic. If one reads the New York Times every single day, then one knows on Tuesdays the science times where these kinds of issues that we've been discussing is, of course, raised. So our first couple of lessons, we're trying to legitimize the endeavor of studying science and seeing how it actually conflicts, corresponds, harmonizes, disharmonizes with Torah Mitzvot. We had seen the Rambam, we had seen Sa'aja Gaon and other great Jewish thinkers who had been constantly involved in the pursuit of knowledge, pursuit of truth. God is close to those who reach out to Him. And of course, the way that one reaches out to Him, according to Harambam, we had seen is by studying works of science, by studying Ma'aseh Bereshit. We had seen as well that there are two distinct areas which provide the most difficulty for us regarding this issue. And one is what's known as cosmology, the birth of the universe, and that which is known as evolution, the birth, in quotes, of the human being. Those are two distinct areas that we've been focusing mainly on the birth of the universe. And eventually we will come to the issue of evolution. How do we deal with the issue of evolution? It's an interesting issue because to this very day it has not yet been resolved in the religious world, in the Haredi world, they viewing it as something which is an anathema, heresy. On the other hand, I say that only because my daughter came home last night, on Friday night, and she was saying how one of her teachers, Halil, said, I don't understand how I could say this. Uh, it's Apikorsus, it's, uh, it's etc., etc. And, of course, the person, unfortunately, is ignorant of the fact that Rav Kook, the great chief rabbi of, uh, of Israel, had, of course, pronounced in favor of evolution, as well as Fede Israel, who wrote the great commentary on the Mishnah itself, 100 years ago. They see ways of corresponding evolution to Torah teaching. I'm not, at this point, coming in favor of that or not coming in favor of that. But a, I mean, that's something that has to be studied, analyzed. One should not reject it offhand and say, this is contrary to Torah, and simply dismiss it out of hand. But to the contrary, one has to analyze both realms, understand evolution properly and well, and see if it corresponds to Torah not. Now, the bottom line over here is really very simple. If evolution is proven, or if any doctrine is proven, then of course, Harambam's statement, Shema Amimisha Amara, in Saktamale Avot, you have to listen to the truth from whatever it's sourced. Then it's yours. You have to adopt this teaching. You can't reject it if it's true. Period. End story. Now, of course, at this point, evolution is only a theory. Even the Big Bang is only a theory. And we were discussing, as we go along, the Big Bang a little bit more extensively. But to the extent that it's a theory, now you have some leeway. To the extent that it's an almost proven theory, that imposes upon you a certain obligation to the extent that it's not a theory at all, but only speculation, that gives you much more leeway. One could pretty safely say that evolution, yes, of course, a theory, but it's approaching vada'ut to the extent that one can, in fact, achieve vada'ut, vada'ut meaning certainty, in this area. Meaning that 99% of those people that study the area of evolutionary biologists will say this is factually true. Though it's not to make it into a law, one cannot extrapolate backwards into the past to understand it as a law, but it seems to be true. Not seems to be 50% possibility, but rather 99% possibility that this is true. Those, some form, yes, absolutely, some form of evolution. We should not confuse, good point, evolution today as it was 100 years ago with Darwin. Darwinian evolution is out, but there are new forms of understanding of how this, how this developed. 
Today's discussion, my daughter said to me, Dad, I didn't come from an ape. I don't know if you did, but I didn't. So she was kind of emotionally an eighth grader reacting to that notion, which I accepted. I said, no, you certainly didn't. You're, you came from me. Don't, don't worry. <laughs> so I tried to escape the issue that way. Well, these are very serious questions. But I go a step further. Now, my step further over here is that insofar as the pursuit of these disciplines is an element of God's world, it brings me closer to Buddha Olam to study these issues. I'd like to believe that in the last three or four years that I've been studying these issues, that people who understand the cosmic universe in its broadest sense have a closer connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Obviously, it's true that not everybody that studies science will come close to God because of this. Of course, that's saying. Although, one of the notions that looms so largely is Einstein's famous quote, that has to be said, taken in context, of course, that the universe is too perfect God is in play, that's the universe, and therefore there is clearly something that we can call God, although his understanding of God is greater than our understanding of God. I like often saying that whereas Einstein understood the principle of Shema, there's a oneness, there's a perfection to the universe. What Einstein missed is the Ahavta. He didn't know how to achieve a relationship of love with Borei Olam. Understandably so. He's a scientist. Not a, he's not a Jewish scientist, he's only a scientist. He's Jew in name, he's Jew in birth, but he didn't have the Mesorah, he didn't have the tradition that we have that one can relate to the creator of all with a feeling of love. Now, to, so, to, betray, to buttress that point, I, we went through a number of different facts about the universe, which has to lead you to the conclusion of Marabu Masech Hashem, how extraordinary, how glorious, how overwhelming is your world, O oh God. I'm in awe of the world that the universe that God has created. How can one not be? Any of these programs we saw, as I mentioned last week, on Nova, you see that the latest supernova that they discovered, which had exploded about was it fifty million years ago, has the intensity of five trillion trillion atom bombs. Say wow. Just say wow to that. It's, that's extraordinary. that's only a, a tiny portion of what God's world is. The quasars, which are the brightest objects in the universe have the equivalency of 10 billion suns. How brilliant is our sun? The sun expresses, as we mentioned, you know all this already, in one second, the sun expresses more energy than this world has consumed to this point. Which is extraordinary. The sun has lasted four and a half billion years. The sun has an average lifespan of nine billion. So I'm not that worried. I probably won't outlast the sun. Probably. Stomach. So in that context, you know what you're dealing with. The sun is an extraordinary creation of God, but only one of a hundred billion other suns in our small galaxy, Milky Way galaxy, and only one of a, what is it, a hundred billion trillion stars in the universe. I say that not to impress you. I say that to know what you're dealing with over here. Dealing with an extraordinary creation of God. God is the Borei Olam of all of this. And, and that famous witty saying, give a man a little science, he becomes a heretic, give him a little more, he becomes a believer. It's true. The more that you know, the more that you study, the more that you plumb the depths of these ideas and thoughts, I believe you become more religious, not less religious. Yes, there are people who will study science superficially, especially in medical school. A lot of people just, because they do it superficially, they don't do pure science, they do it practical science, biology for the purpose of understanding the body. When they study it superficially, they have questions, questions aren't answered, they leave religion. That has been often enough the story in the Syrian community because we have a very fundamentalist kind of philosophy in this community. Either you're with us or against us. 
and the, those who were in power are not willing to even entertain or think about any other possibilities. It's a sad comment on our community because it loses people. We all know people that have, law, have been lost and are lost because of the inability of the community to tolerate their expanded fields of knowledge. Now, with all that, of course, it's true that all that we're saying now is still in the realm of becoming. We don't have final answers to all the questions that we're raising. Just yesterday, I read an article in Commentary which says, was there really a Big Bang? He raised five good questions. So my answer and point to him is, you're right, there are questions. He wants to, of course, dismiss the entire theory and speak once again about a static universe, which was the prevailing philosophical and scientific view up to about 1947 when George Glasgow had said, no, 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 it's an expanding universe. First, Hubble suggested it in 1929 because of what's known as the red shift. We could tell that galaxies are moving further away at increasing speeds. And then it was speculated that there was a Big Bang in 47 with George Glasgow, and it was proven, no, not proven, but almost proven, in 1967 with um, our Stanley Schwartz's very good friend, Arnold Penzias, from the cosmic background radiation. That was the most likely hypothesis as to why he's hearing this radiation out there, remnants of a Big Bang. And given the Nobel Prize for that in 78 for the, that discovery. Okay, that's a great story, but there are questions. There's a lot that is not actually explained by all this. Although it explains all known phenomena extraordinarily well, but we don't have the whole picture yet. All of that we know. It's ongoing. God's world is infinite, presumably, and therefore our knowledge and our quest for it also has to go in a never-ending basis. So now, this year we are opening up a new chapter in this discussion. And that is written by um, a friend of mine, happens to be, Rabbi uh, Dr. Matt, Daniel Matt, who saw interesting parallels between the scientific concept of Big Bang and how the world actually came about and Kabbalah. Now, we're not going to simplistically accept his parallels. Right, Eli? We're not going to do that. But we're certainly going to just simply raise both, is- both issues because we are open to understanding, to learning, to thinking. We may reject the whole entire book at the end of the day. Or we may say, well, that's funny. We want to see whether he's reading into Kabbalah. Is it really in Kabbalah? It- we, have to- we want to play with these cards. I don't know what the end of the game is going to be. It's from your point of view. I read the book. And I'm not sure that I have firm feelings about it yet. Discuss it, think about it, digest it, and we'll see. As an introduction to this book, which is going to find parallels between science and religion, between the Big Bang and Kabbalah, which is an interesting concept, we are now engaged a little bit in the study of Kabbalah. Again, it's only an endeavor to expand our horizons. We may or may not accept all these understandings, we may not, we may not understand, them, understand them even, but simply I want to see how far can we understand the depths of Bereshit, how far are we willing to push the limits of interpretation. You have a text. We all agree what the Kabbalah says is not what's in the text, or at least not at, at face value. They would say it's in the text. Just look at it and you'll see it. You see seven days of creation, you see seven days of creation. It's not what they see in seven days of creation. The Mikubalim see something much more profound as to how the world came about. Now, we had read already, of course, as you well know, the 
opening section of the Kabbalah, of the Zohar, which is the crown of Kabbalistic writings. We read the opening section a number of times because that's difficult to understand. And even with all that, do we really understand it? Okay. We read it, absorbed it. We see it's not what you would think of if you were just simply reading Parashat Bereshit. The Kabbalah goes way beyond. And it's acceptable. It's legitimate. It's holy writings. But that's pushing the furthest within the realm of interpretation, acceptable interpretation. We'll see where all this goes. Now, before we go to the next step, which actually is a study of Daniel Matt's book, my idea was to read a few more sections of Kabbalistic writings, not simply from the Zohar itself, that we had seen, but rather the Kabbalah throughout the last 500 years. Get some sense of what the Mekubalim are saying, and then we can go to this book and see where he's going with it. And, of course, what's interesting over here is that when you get to Rav Kook, who was one of the last one of the last of the great Mekubalim passed away in 1935. Rav Kook is an interesting personality in merging all these trends together. As already mentioned, he was certainly a firm believer in evolution, very firm believer in Kabbalah, and he in fact also was able to find shades of overlap between Kabbalah and science. And therefore, when one says that evolution, for example, is, is apikorsut, it's illiteracy. It means you simply don't know the sources. It means you don't know evolution, nor do you know the great rabbis who support it. And of course, this very day, there are multiples of rabbis who will not deny it. And semicha rabbis, rabbis who know the sources both ways, because it's so evident. It's so much proof in its favor. On the other hand, yes, it's true, there are many who will disagree with it. We have to entertain both positions. No problem with that. So let's now, for a few minutes, just look at some of the sources of the Kabbalah. We had seen already one. Now we're going to go to the Divine breath. So please give this out. Right? And then also... And also 194, which are the notes. We want to look at his notes. This is the notes to that. Okay? Now, what I found very nice in last week's reading... We're focusing now, remember, only on Kabbalah. Next week we'll come back a little bit more to the science. And we are kind of in between both poles. And we're shifting from one to the other. Hopefully it's not confusing anybody. The first reading that we had last week spoke about light. Light plays a very strong role in Kabbalah. Does light play a very strong role in the Big Bang Theory? Yes. The explosion was one of light. Energy. Light is a form of energy. Pure energy exploding. Now, to even imagine the force of this explosion is impossible. You're talking about the way that the Big Bang theorists work, and we'll come back to this, just want to make the point to make reference later on, is that all the matter of the universe, which is extensive, huge, was all packed, if you just extrapolate backwards, into a tiny, infinitesimally small point, infinitely small point, if one can say, use that term, and then at a certain point, it exploded with an unimaginable force. If we talk about, you know, a quasar is only 10 billion suns of energy. Imagine what this was. 100 billion suns, a million billion suns. Now, there's no term that we could really comprehend that moment of what's known in science as singularity. Unique moment in the history of this universe where everything exploded and it still is exploding, still going out. It is still in the process of creation. Creation is still going on in a very literal sense. 
but that, but that, uh, you're say, saying now that that was yesh. That was the first moment of yesh. From Ayin. Mm. What took place prior to that, no one knows. And Stephen Hawking, one of the world's famous cosmological physicists, says, whatever took place before the Big Bang, only God knows. And he may not believe in God. There's machlok as to what he does. Doesn't so it's interesting. Some say no, some say yes. He said no. He said yes. He said no, I don't. And he said, and he said, only God knows. What do you really mean by this? Nobody knows. But he, it's an intelligent position because he's right that I can only deal with the first trillionth of a second of Big Bang and start writing equations. Probably that nobody knows. And who brought it into existence? And if it's that perfect in that it's what's called isotropic, which means it's all expanding uniformly in the same area in the same way it's too perfect we had seen how extraordinarily perfect Maaseh Bereshit was I'm not telling you this remember this is not a class I'm trying to convince you anything this is George Will telling you this when George Will says that notion that if it was a hundred billion of a second too cool it would have collapsed too hot it would have expanded forever we'd have no world no earth no people nothing it just, it's too perfect we had seen the articles we had read it so in the popular press of Newsweek magazine, a political columnist, George Will, is saying, wow, look at science. Look how it confirms Genesis. He's saying it. Which I found interesting. So yes, we start with Yesh. We've always seen this as Yesh Me'ayin. But really, you're, going, you're touching on a very important point in that what is that Ayin really all about? There's a great chapter in uh, Daniel Matt's book called Nothingness and Oneness which tries to find that contact point between Hashem God, who's no-thingness, known in Hebrew as Ayin, nothingness, the holy nothingness, and yet allness. God is allness. How could God be both no-thingness and allness at the same time? So that's one of the interesting issues. That kind of, and he makes reference to Kabbalah throughout his work. Remember, this book also, which is a collection of writings... He edited, Daniel Matt. This is the essential Kabbalah, the heart of Jewish mysticism. Right, so I just took this book, to have it, and it's, it's um, a very nice collection of writings from the spectrum of Kabbalah that's going to traverse 800 years. I'll give you a sense of it, and then we'll tie it back to the scientific writings. So the opening statement is about life. Life plays a very strong role. I like, just to remind you, the reading that we read, when powerful light is concealed and clothed in a garment is revealed. Kabbalah will often speak about an issue and its reverse. To be and to not be. Nothingness and allness. That's two sides of the same coin from their point of view. When you deal with Kabbalah, you're not dealing with a logical, systematic presentation of issues. But rather, often there's slight, what I would call, but only metaphorically, slights of hand. Notice this statement. Well, it sounds like what you're saying is the unity of opposites. Yes, exactly. That's what it sounds like. Right. So that will become more prominent as we go along. So that all is one. Yeah. Yeah. So let's see how that plays itself out. Correct. So the first interesting image is that when powerful light is concealed and clothed in a garment, it is revealed. So I first read this, I said, what? How could that, what does it mean? Though concealed, the light is actually revealed. For were it not concealed, it could not be revealed. It's an extraordinary statement, right? This came from, this reading came, as we think we mentioned last week, from Moshe Cordovero, Padishri Munim, 16th century. Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, Namak, known 
as a normative Jewish thinker. Hadith Limunim is a very accessible book that many editions have been printed of it. And he, this was his position on this. This is post-Zohar. Now he says, This is like wishing to gaze at the dazzling sun. Its dazzle conceals it, for you cannot look at its overwhelming brilliance. Yet when you conceal it, looking at it through screens, you can see and not be harmed. So is with emanation. God's emanation. The analogy they always use is light emanating from the sun. Is God emanating his sefirot? Okay, let's look at this for a moment. The Zohar... Well, there's two different things, right? There's many different things. He's not concealing it. He's filtering it. If you can see, you can conceal light, then it can't be seen. Right. Okay. So, good. You know what this is he saying? Here he's saying that you are concealing it through screens. Well, you can see and not be harmed. So, what he means by that is is, is a, qu- a good question. Does it mean that you are seeing the effects of it, or through? He used the word uh, through sunglasses. I think in one of his notes. You're seeing it through a screen which filters, which blocks, which allows some of it to come through. So it's concealed. I don't really see the sun itself, but I see its rays emanating around. So even when you have sunglasses, you're still seeing light. So that's what he seems to see over here. Now, the Kabbalah's problem is, how could God the Infinite create the finite? We discussed this. How could that be? So the Kabbalah's answer to this question is emanations. And what does emanation mean? Same way that a sun emanates its light, so too God emanates his self to through a series of sefirot the word of means to count emanations and it's a very intricate worked out system the first is called keter now, what is the bridge from the infinite to the finite you're saying the sefirot yes how does that work we'll get to that down the road it's a very complex system that each last, each one ago, each one about a vacuum well, what, that's the pre-sefirot pre-sefirot which we'll get to over here, is that God contracts into Himself. Simsum. Very prominent. At the very least, this class, at least you get a familiar with the terminology of Sefirot and Sof Simsum. Simsum means God contracts into Himself, creating a emptiness, a vacuum. In that vacuum is the point from which ultimate creation takes place. Remember, we read last week, what is that point called? That point creates a palace, and that palace is called Elohim which of course throws us really way off. We always assume the term Elohim to be reflective of God Himself. Kabbalah says, no, Elohim is not God Himself. God is beyond the spoken word. God is beyond any name. It's so fascinating how the Kabbalah refuses to, in any which way, label God. It's the most transcendent of all the Jewish literature. It pushes God to the furthest recesses. And yet, God becomes, through Kabbalah, the most imminent and the most almost palpable through the system of Sefirot. Because God really comes down. But it's not God who comes, but it's hard to explain. And they will tell you, and I will emphasize this repeatedly, there's only metaphors. It's not literally true. So what does it mean? It's a metaphor, but it's true. That's the way, the unity of opposites, they will say that it's, tr- it's a true metaphor. It's a true metaphor. Is it literally true? It's not literally true. It's literally true? Yes, it is. No, it's a metaphor. It's only a metaphor. It means nothing. No, it means everything. That's what you get if you talk to a cat like that. Because they're trying to capture that which is uncatchable. Which is fine. From my point of view, it's fine because I understand that I cannot ultimately place all of reality into a little box of rationality. That's what I was going to ask you. So you can't get this with pure logic. Exactly. That's what they're going to say. Tools. tools called metaphors. You need intuition. You need intuition that. is, yes. Yeah. yeah. And now, ironically, Maimonides, who's the arch-rationalist, comes to the same conclusion. 
one cannot use any term for God. I cannot use a term for God, period. I can't say God exists. You know why? It's a false statement. Any positive statement about Bode Olam is a false statement because God's existence is not the same as our existence at all. We are, in His words, contingent, meaning we're here and not here. He is the opposite, which is necessary existence. He cannot not be here. Nothing, the necessary existence and the contingent have nothing in common. Zero. What's the analogy he gives? says, same way that you have, we discussed this once before, a couple of years ago, you have a constellation of stars in the shape of a dog that's called Sirius. What does that have in common with the dog that, ba- that barks? The answer, nothing other than the accidental form. The stars don't bark and the dog doesn't shine. Nothing in common, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Well known. It goes to the homonym. Homonym are two words that each applies to a different object if they only have accidental character traits in common, not essential. Such a means what makes you really you. You're only accidentally an Eli. Essentially, you're a human being. Essentially, you have everything in common with a human being. And we also have, we all have different clothes and different names. Those are accidental traits. Color of eyes, accident. Height, accident. What's essential about you? Your humanness, which makes you a human being. So, no term that we use for Hashem is actually literally in any which way, applicable. What I can say about God is only what He is not. Not a table, not a salt shaker, not a sugar shaker, not a tie, not a tie clip, not a pair of glasses. I say what God is not. Negative theology. The Kabbalah, although the Ramam makes no reference to it whatsoever, is making essentially the same point. The Kabbalah is not happy with that. Therefore, the Kabbalah says, well, I could talk about God metaphorically and I will have sefirot. Are they literally true? No, it's a metaphor. But does it mean something? Yes. Those metaphors, it means something. Is it, what does it mean? We don't know. That's the kind of discussion you'll have. But there's a certain, I think, intuitive leap that this whole discussion takes you to. When the Kubalim, remember, become ecstatically, intimately involved with God Himself, much more so than the rationalists who maintain this bridge of reason between themselves and God, that's limiting. The intu- intuitive leap is what brings you closer to God. On, in one sense, in one level, in one manner of speaking. I'm not a Mekubal. I can't vouch for it. But when you read their works and their literatures, you see how propelled they are towards an intimacy with God. But of course, has an interesting statement just perhaps look over here that he sees God as not out there, but rather within. Prayer is an attempt to delve deeply into oneself to touch one's core, which is essentially God. Right. Exactly. Which is an ex- it's a frightening and yet ex- extraordinary point. That is a typical Kabbalistic point. I mean, Kubal would say that. Prayer is not an outward thrust, rather an inward plunge to contact your core, who, which is, at bottom, Hashem, God Himself. It was interesting that once we had learned four or five years ago, Rabbi Soloveitchik on Teshuvah, and he does, in fact, make the same point, that God is within, not without. Shuvah is an act of turning within towards oneself. To, the, the Mikdash is you that houses God, which is striking. Let's go to this. So now, look at page 92, Divine Breath. Let's find out where this is from, first of all, on page 92. Our footnotes tell us over here that the Divine Breath is a passage from Shabbatai Dan. Dunalo, 
10th century, Sibrahakimoni. Right? Clear? Good. What is it telling us? Using an image and analogy by which to understand how God brought forth the world. One of the two issues that the Kabbalah is concerned about is creation. How did God, how did Hashem bring forth the world? Number one. And number two is the essence of God. Maseh Merkavah deals with the essence of God, divine providence. Maseh Bereshit is what he's going to describe now is how God brought forth the world. When a glass blower wants to produce glassware, he takes an iron blowpipe, hollows a reed from one end to the other, and digs into molten glass in a crucible. Then he places the tip of the pipe in his mouth and he blows, and his breath passes through the pipe to the molten glass attached to the other end. Right? When the power of it is blowing, the glass expands and turns into a vessel, large, small, long, and winds, whatever arts and desires. So, here's an analogy. Struggling for a metaphor by which to express the process of creation. So, God, great, mighty, and awesome, powerfully breathed out of breath, and a cosmic space expand to the boundary determined by divine wisdom, till God said, enough. Now, your first question is, where does this image come from to begin with about God's breath? Right. If you look at Maseya Bereshit, the interesting question that of course is raised, what does it mean, Ruach Elohim, God's breath? All the new translations, JPS, will say no. It doesn't mean God's breath. That's the old translation. The new translation will say, Ruach meaning wind. No, God doesn't have a spirit. Paganism, writ large. No, God does not have a spirit at all. The old translations will, in fact, you want to just pull out a Hertz or a Hirsch? And I'm willing to bet my bottom dollar that they're going to say that and I'm go- we're going to say over here wind. Because those authors would say that God does not have a breath or a spirit. Okay, that's good enough. You all copy the same one. Spirit, right. So they're pagan. Okay. You're right. They say, yeah, watch out for that. We have a power to its own. Good. Of course, the... Um, JPS says, when God began to create, it wasn't in the beginning God created heaven and the earth. And they explain why they don't say that. So when God began to create heaven and earth, and what's the between? Spirit. Spirit, okay. I don't think Ochoa should say that either. They might be. No, that's not the, no, that's not the, okay. No. Bereshit bara. Does that mean God created? Or is the contract states when God was in the process of creation? What's the difference? Once this creation took place at a time, beginning God created, as opposed to, as they say now more precisely, because this is the Bereshit in the beginning of. Bereshit means, Bereshit Mamlechet Yoakim. The beginning of, this is Ebenezer's point. The beginning of Yoakim, in the beginning of. Right? That, when it began, in the beginning of gives it a continuity. So really, it's more probably, rather than the beginning God created, it's not past, that's absolute, it's the beginning of God's creation. Or, when God began to create heaven and earth. So that does not put it place at a time. Created. No, when God began to create heaven and earth, the earth being unformed and void, when darkness over the surface of the deep and, and a wind. From God sweeping over the water. Now there's a huge difference between wind and spirit. Obviously. Right? So this is more precise, but less Kabbalistic. As is obvious. The Kabbalah sees it really as a divine breath. God have breath? No. But the Kabbalah is willing to use that metaphor to express an idea. 
So when God, not the divine wind, but they're going to go back to the original translation, say when divine breath. So God, great, mighty, and awesome, powerfully breathed out of breath, and a cosmic space expanded as a glass blower blows through glass and it expands. That image of a 10th century glass blower expressed well from his point of view, Master Bereshit. Right? Cosmic expanded to the boundary determined by divine wisdom till God said enough. Where does what God said enough come from? Shaddai. Gemara on the word Shaddai exactly is that. Nobody to this day actually knows what the word Shaddai really means. Gemara says it means Is that a literal or a Midrashic understanding? Well, Midrash seems to say that it's literally true. Most people will not say that that's what the word really means. Some say it comes from Shim Daladalad, which means Shodid. Power. Power. Shodid. Power. Therefore, the meaning comes to be Almighty. All powerful. Interesting. But this comes from the Gemara. Zeshamar Dai Laolam. Good. That's what our footnote will tell us. Enough. Hebrew Dai. If you look at page 194 in your footnotes, in rabbinic literature, the divine name Shaddai is interpreted as the one who said die enough putting a limit on the initial expansion of the cosmos. Right? Die. Okay, good. Next paragraph. How did God create the world? Page 92. Like a person taking a deep breath and holding it in, holding it so that the small contains the large. What does that mean? The small contains the large. Take a breath and think about it. Literally, take a breath. If you take a breath, what's small? Small, your mouth, containing the large. There's more breath coming up than I had in. Well, they don't want to wear that, perhaps at that time period. But that's the image that he's playing now. So the small contains the large. Simply God contracted his light. Now comes the first notion. The second passage from Shimon Lavi, 16th century. Ketim Paz. We should be aware of where our sources are from. So the footnote tells us that the second passage... <coughs> it was interesting, right? Yeah. yeah. The, the Zohar happened to have been a great Sephardi uh, investment of energy, time, mm-hmm. of use of... Yeah. Yeah, Pastor picked it up afterwards. Right. Yeah, even the Rehaim Atar, who was one of the late 18th century Kabbalistic commentators on Torah, the last probably, is Faradi as well. Mm-hmm. And the Ashkenazi the Bisakluria, who authored and put forth what's called the Eitz Hayim, which was summarized and put together by the Rehaim Vital, said that though he was Ashkenazi, my Geza is Faradi. My roots in this, my spiritual root Shemaim, really Sfaradi, mm-hmm. which of course is true. And, and Hazim also use a form of tefillah, Nosach Sefarad, which is close to ours. So they kind of rejected. Yeah, so they kind of rejected the Ashkenazic mold. Mm-hmm. And they went into this more close to Sfaradi. And it all relates to this notion that it is, yes, Sfaradically uh, motivated. Shimon, the 6th century, what does he say over here? Had to go to the other world. Similarly, God contracted his light, contracted. They have the notion of Tzimtzum. His light to a divine hand breath, and the world was left in darkness. In the darkness, God created cliffs and hewed rocks to clear wondrous paths of wisdom. What is that? Why should we understand what it means? What, what's your havamina, as they say? What's your prem? Why should you understand what it means? God contracted his light to a divine hand breath, he made it 
big and too small, is light, which is big, and to a hand's breadth, which is uh, a tefah, right. small. And the world is left in darkness. Interesting how light and darkness play a role, of course, in Masai Bereshit as well. In the darkness, God carved cliffs and hewed rocks to clear wondrous paths with it. Footnote, okay, footnote, page 194. According to Midrash, God contracted His presence, Shekhinah, in the tablet. Now, it's interesting again, and I mentioned this point before, how Kabbalah will all use, always use, other ideas, biblical, rabbinic, midrashic, whatever it is, and refashion and carve them into new ideas and thoughts. So you see this example over here. According to the midrash, God contracted His presence, Shekhinah, to the tablet that accompanied the children of Israel in the woods of Sinai. This is the famous midrash that we all know. How do we know this midrash? Because it's from the Pesukim. Midrash as well based itself always on a pasuk. It doesn't create Yeshma'ayin, it has a pasuk behind it. Shekhinah was concentrated, especially in the Ark of the Covenant. Midrash and Humah, Vayakil, paragraph 7. Obvious. On top of the ark was gold-covered flanked by two keruvim hammered out at either end. Divine voice spoke to Moshe from above the cover. Does it say that? Yes, that's the pasuk. Right? I, I will meet with you there. From between the two keruvim. Divine voice spoke to Moses from above the cover between the two keruvim. The cover itself was one hand breadth thick. One tefah. Those of us said that the tabernacle, in the tabernacle, in the Mishkan, God contra- contracted His presence, Simsum, to a hand breath. Now we know where we got hand breath from. Tefah. Now passage, God concentrates or contracts Simsum, the divine light to a divine hand breath, withdrawing it from the rest of space which turns dark. Now this is almost saying that there was a pre-existence. Is it not? In other words... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. When you talk about 16th century Kabbalah, you talk about a late already. This is late already. There's much Kabbalah before that. This active withdrawal or inhalation is the first step in the process of emanation. So God creates by withdrawing. Creation is an act. Withdrawing is a lack of an act. It's a, the opposite of an act. So God creates by inhaling or withdrawing His light. Dark space, now finite world can come into existence. Otherwise, it's all God. How did He create? So God only creates by withdrawing His presence, so to speak. Literally, no. Metaphor, yes. Does it mean only metaphor? No, it really means it. How does it really mean it? Only by metaphor. That's the way that Kabbalah operates. Okay? So, let's look a little bit further. that say that the same like how evil could exist is the lack of awareness of the presence of God. So could we not say that whatever reality was, it lacked the awareness of the presence of God and therefore you could have Gashmi. Yeah. Is that the same thing? That Absolutely, said? yeah. So there has but, to be a, a non-conscious awareness of God. Yeah. Whatever that reality is, but we also believe that there was nothing there. Well, How does that work? Well, you're actually just mixing in two different systems of the Kabbalah. So there are multiple systems of the Kabbalah. There are multiple systems of the Kabbalah. The Zohar is not Sefer Bahir, which is not Sefer Yitzirah, which is not Luriana Kabbalah. So that's one point. Mm-hmm. And as we go along, you will see that evil actually is a very important part of Kabbalistic thinking. They, too, are very concerned about trying to understand the existence of evil if God is allness. 
Well, I'm comparing that evil to, to physical. Right. So now some systems of Kabbalah, they will be, that's a legitimate comparison. They will say that the physical is a manifestation of evil. The anathema of, of, of spirituality. Allness. Right. Allness. Yeah, because whatever is, is, is contrary to God's allness. Right. So there are those systems, especially the more modern systems, which will exactly say that. Gashmiyut stands opposed to Rochniyut. Spirituality and physicality mm-hmm. are two opposites. And to the extent that we are physical, we back yes, to the extent that we are physical, we are limiting God's presence, and that is a descent. Mm-hmm. And one has to try to escape the body, which is physical, which limits the spirituality from shining or from so becoming. So contracts that sort of a descent. His so contraction. And you have the emanations. Well, his contraction allows a room for a vacuum for materialism or physicality to exist. But then, on the other side of that emanation, is that the, it's still God's presence, which almost attempts to uplift the, spirit, the physical to a spiritual. But that we'll see as we go along. But again, you, you have to try, try to keep your Kabbalistic schools separate. Look at the next page, 93. Again, Okay. The necessary thing that he has to pull back is now if the people are going to go towards the more physical, it doesn't mesh with God. Jamie. Well, physical or more idolatrous? It's also more of a, a less spiritual type of thing. Okay. That could be. That's the same way this world has to be a physical world. Hashem's complete presence can't be here because it doesn't, it doesn't mesh. He pulls back his complete presence allows to become physical. The only problem is that you're, you're, you're being too physical about God. You're... you're, ter- you're, 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 you're Naming God almost as a physical presence, pulling back, pushing in. God has no presence that is physically determinable. Right, so it's a metaphor. Just be be aware that you're using a metaphor. Correct. But a better analogy. Can you call it consciousness? That'd be closer and better because it's more conceptual and spiritual than a physical metaphor about God. What's interesting about this over here is that your point would have been better served by the sixth chapter of Bereshit where exactly God says what you said. In the 6th chapter of Bereshit, we have this, the beginning when mankind began to multiply, they had women, daughters, the men of stature, right? I don't say men of God, children of God, which Christianity would like to interpret that way, we don't interpret that way. The Tadavum already stops from us understanding it that way, although there are other Midrash countries that do understand it in that spiritual, divine sense. But we see it's when men of great stature, interesting, sons of God, they saw the women, they're very good, they took, grabbed wives from whomever they chose. Because man is so physical, he's so fleshy, therefore God says, Now, what does this mean over here? Here you can't translate as wind, what does Ruhi mean over here? Here it means my breath. My presence. My presence or my breath. Ruach is breath. Shall not abide in man forever. So there you have the opposites of the physical basar and the spiritual ruach. And God says, I will withdraw because man is too physical, too concerned about matters of the flesh. So the Kabbalah in general will in fact be very concerned about physicality. So you're right that point. Absolutely correct. Let's see this over here. Now this is from again. We're seeing the source 
page 93. We're talking about Tzimtzum. This is from Ramban. Our first passage from the Ramban, 13th century. His Pirush Antifid Yitzirah. Right? So that we want to be aware. This is the Ramban. So what does he say to us over here? Wisdom is the end of what you can ponder in thought. For Keter. What's Keter? It's the highest Sefirah. Look at your... Look at your... Map. <laughs> Ketir is the highest Sefirah or the first emanation from God. Fills more than the mind can conceive. It contracted the essence of its presence. What's the it? Hashem. Right, God. Contracted the essence of its presence into a hand breath. Mm-hmm. We saw that kind of before. And darkness appeared over everything. For the absence of light is darkness. Then, from the source of all, it emanated, source of all is? Hashem, God. It emanated the bright light of wisdom. Well, I wouldn't place too much <laughs> emphasis on this small eye, that this typographical error. I think that's what it has to mean. It emanated the bright light of wisdom into 32 paths. Of course, the question is, where to get 32 from? Why 32? You can't assume that it's, that it's accidental. They just made it up. It's 32 Lamed Bet Lev, which was my first thought. Second thought is, there are 32 principles of interpretation of the Torah itself. Rabbi Shagili, you all know Rabbi Shemayel's 13. Prior to Rabbi Shemayel's 13, you had Hillel's 7. Post Hillel's, Rabbi Shemayel's 13, you have Lamed Bet principles of interpretation of Rabbi Shagili, which is 200 years later. It's a famous Midrash. In Midrash, Rabbi Shagili, 32 principles of interpretation. Is that where he gets it from? I would put a huge question mark on that. Let's hold on. Each penetrating the darkness, with them the engraver engraved the darkness. Which means that the darkness is, of course, physical, with which the engraver, meaning Hashem, small e, sorry, engraved the darkness. Now, if we look at our footnotes here, right, with me, in 32 past, See the tenth sefirot, page sixty-two, sefirot Yitzira, thirty-one pence of wisdom. So just it, it comes from a well-known kabbalistic source. In sefirot Yitzira, at the thirty-two paths, but it doesn't tell us exactly where the Kabbalah got thirty-two paths from. Okay, withdrew, tzimtzum, contracted, concentrated. But here meaning contracted, withdrew. The concept of tzimtzum, animated in early Kabbalah. And Isaac Luria, Ramak, and the Arizal. This initial withdrawal of a divine presence creates a vacuum to which emanation proceeds. See the introduction, page 415. Okay, so that somewhat clear to what happened over here. Ramban is making this point. There was divine contraction, Tim withdrawal, vacuum. Now we can start creation. Otherwise, God is the allness, and there can be no room for finitude in the allness, infinite presence of God. Straight the top, the top, Ramban. The top three lines of this uh, thing. Wisdom. Now, he's saying that wisdom is the end of what you can ponder the thought. In other words, the, what's, what's the pasuk in Shit Chochmayat Hashem? No. Sof Maasev Achshavat Wisdom is the final goal that you think about initially. You are in the process of thinking and wisdom is the end of what you can ponder the thought. So now he goes on to say that... So what, where's the end of thought over here? Where's the end of thought? Malchut. Oh, uh-huh. Malchut is the end. Wisdom is the first, after Keter, 
the pure on your right hand side is chokhmah, is wisdom. Now he's saying that keter is the highest of ira. Fills more than the mind can conceive. It's so above chokhmah. I see. It's above chokhmah. I got it. Now. It's above wisdom, mm-hmm. right? So keter fills more. Then it contract to create chokhmah. I must contract the essence. The keter. The keter. That's to be contracted, making it smaller in order for keter to exist. And that is a, is a, yeah, is, that system goes on throughout all of them. Interesting. We'll see. Next paragraph. Before the creation of the world, and soft, without end, withdrew itself into its essence, simsum, from itself to itself within itself. It's a great statement. Okay. Before the creation of the world, and soft, withdrew itself into its essence, from itself to itself within itself. It left an empty space within its essence in which it could emanate and create. Here we have the notion and this second um, second passage seems also to be from where? From the Ramban as well. From the Ramban as well. But it's standard Kabbalah that the notion over here is that the, the infinite contracted to itself and thereby pre- provided a hole, a point, a beginning. We had seen the Zohar last week, the emphasis on the word Reshit. Bet Reshit. That Reshit, that little point, became a bayit or a palace, which he called, Zohar called, Elohim. Right. And again, that's straight text. I didn't make it up. Or interpret it. That's there. It left an empty space in its essence. So, therefore, imagine this, that everything is God. And emptiness Void of God is a vacuum within the oldness of God. There's a point in which it could emanate and create. And in that point, which you call a sheet, point which you call a sheet, that's where God chooses to emanate and ultimately create. Okay? Let's look at the next one. We have now Tumsuman Shivira. This is going to be. Nothing I said. Second, second paragraph. There's a date tonight. Let's go here. This goes here. This goes here. And here. Okay. And same page of footnotes. Now we're going to read a section from Rabbi Chaim Vital. Pri Eitz. Right? And he, this is from the works of Rabbi Akluria. 16th, 17th century on the world. This is from the footnotes. On the world of emanation. In the Kutim Hadashim. Good. Okay? Let's look at it very carefully. So this is going to build on earlier Kabbalistic notions. We still have the footnotes, right? The footnotes the same page? Mm-hmm. Yes, page one... Which page? 195, correct? We all have it? Yes? Yes, 195. Yeah. Okay. Let's look at the original source first. Simsum and Shavira, withdrawal and shattering. We're going to build on the past, but we're going to take it to a new direction, the shattering. Behind Vital. When the spiritual, when the supernal emanator, which is Hashem, wished to create this material universe, it withdrew its presence. At first, the Ansar filled everything. Allness. Now, still, even an inanimate stone is illuminated by God's presence. Which is interesting. The stone that you have, everything, is a manifestation or an illumination of God's presence. Otherwise, the stone cannot exist at all. God is pure existence. Now, what does the name Yudkevavke mean? The verb to be. Beingness. Pure beingness. That's not Kabbalah, standard stuff. 
Now, if that's what it means, then everything that exists in any which level of this that it's on, it all has an element of divinity to it, which is a little unusual or radical this, idea. This, this uh, writer is jumping all over the place. Behind the tongue? Look where he is. What? First, he talks about um, it's, it, uh, the answer for Jewish presence. Then it says, at, at first, Ansar filled everything. Now, what does that mean, everything? If there was no creation, what did it fill? Everything. But there was God, no creation. Correct. God is everything. God is, God was, everything is, God is and everything. Then, then he jumps to the point where, as if things are created now, and that Hashem exists in every type of inanimate yeah, object. Yeah, the word now is that bridge. At first, Ansar filled everything that was nothing, other than God himself. Everything is, God is everything. Ansar. Now, still, now meaning there was creation, a vacuum and creation. He he just, yes, correct. Yeah. You're right. That's absolutely correct. See, still, even an inanimate stone, just giving you an example that once creation took place, even an inanimate stone is illuminated by it. Otherwise, it's not going to dissolve. It would disintegrate. can't be. The illumination of and so clothes itself in garment upon garment. Mm-hmm. So, that stone is a, is a clothed a garment for the and so it's hidden in that stone. Right. At the beginning of creation, when Ensof drew its presence all around in every direction, it left a vacuum in the middle, surrounded on all sides by the light of Ensof, empty precisely in the middle. Mm-hmm. The light withdrew like water in a pond displaced by a stone. Could you imagine that? Mm-hmm. You have a pond, you throw a stone in it, what happens? It's sort of like, in the middle, you see like a funnel-like reaction, correct? Yep. Don't read ahead. I'm wondering behind. I can't keep up with this. I'm getting slowly. No, it's not easy to keep up with. I hear you. You're right. At the beginning of creation, when Antioch withdrew its presence all around every direction, it left a vacuum in the middle, Mm -hmm. surrounded on all sides by the light of Antioch. So, empty, precise in the middle. So, you see light all around, vacuum in the middle. The light withdrew like water in a pond displaced by a stone. When a stone is dropped in a pond, the water at the spot does not disappear. It merges with the rest. Right? The water doesn't disappear. You drop a stone, the water is pushed away. Pushed away into other directions. Right? Yeah. But there's a hole in the middle. Mm-hmm. So the withdrawn light converged beyond, and in the middle remained a vacuum. So that means non, a non-existence, the vacuum. The vacuum is what? A non non isness, if we had to say, remained a vacuum. non bedi Can't we say that? I'm not sure what you're saying. Maybe we can. The opposite of um, somewhere between yesh and ayin. <laughs> you know. Um, well, we have yesh. God is yesh, all allness. Mm-hmm. The ayin is that vacuum. Is it? I don't know. I'm thinking that it may be. What is, the, what is that vacuum that we have now? See, really, the interesting point over here is, it sounds like you're right, in that the light withdrew like water in a pond displaced by a stone. When a stone is dropped in the pond, the water does not disappear. It's not really an absolute vacuum. It merges with the rest. So the light converged beyond, and in the middle remained a vacuum. So that now I have an empty vacuum. So what do you want to say the vacuum well, is? How would, we, um, how would we define a vacuum? Empty of God's presence. But a vacuum, vacuum. How, how empty they... of everything. Mm-hmm. Pure emptiness. Can everything be empty of God's presence? He's saying no. The theme would say no. A rationalist would say that that cup is not God's presence in it. 
or spoon or, or sweet and low. God's healthy doesn't eat sweet and low. To the contrary, who would say that everything is God's presence other than the Kabbalists? Nobody. The Kabbalah would say that you're everything right. Is God. Everything is God. The stone is clothing divine presence, which is a... So how, do, how does that differentiate well, let's see. from pantheism? Let's not get to that yet. Okay. We, will, we should come back to that. You're right. Pantheism is a very, uh, yeah, very similar notion, but I think the answer to that question is that whereas a pantheist, Spinoza, would say that God really is everything, Kabbalah would not say that really God is everything. And you're back into the realm of metaphor and trying to express what is inexpressible. So whereas Spinoza really believed God is everything. Yeah, he would probably tell them he is or he isn't. I mean, come on, guys. Right. You know, what's and, all this... And he'd say he is. He is everything. Mm-hmm. Spinoza is known as... Spon- That's why he is... is he we would say... He, well, yeah. He, I mean, well, for that reason, no. Probably because he rejected Torah. Mr. Mine. You see, not. That's why, but... He saw everything as an ex- God is infinite extension. Like infinite the sun expansion. is God, so one could worship the sun. Is that, is that he wouldn't say that, no. He would just say, he wasn't a pagan, he said that God is everything. <laughs> literally. God is infinite extension. Literally. We're going to say it's not literal. Excuse me. I think I'm going to say it's not literal. That's where we draw the line. But I don't know if he meant it literally. Because Spinoza he knows, did. But he knows God is, is, is uh, um, above the, the, the... No. The He's, he would say God physical. is imminent. No, imminent. He's everything. We say God is transcendent and imminent. Mm-hmm. But that's a paradox. And we're going to switch, or to capture the, what God is, we have to switch from imminence to transcendent. Kadosh, 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 Spinoza probably said the same thing. Not in his writings, he didn't. <laughs> you know, I don't know. So it's interesting. But let's look at this. Now, then all the opacity and density of judgment within the light of Ansof, like a drop in the ocean, was extracted. All the opacity, which means the... Uh, thickness and density of judgment within the light of Ansof, like a drop in this ocean, was extracted. Descending into the vacuum, it, God, transformed into an amorphous mass. God transformed something into an amorphous mass surrounded in every direction by the light of the Ansof. Look at the footnote. Look at the, these uh, will help us. A vacuum. According to other accounts, this vacuum was not absolute since there remained a trace, reshimu, of divine light. Okay, one should point that this is almost Joey's point, that even the vacuum is not an absolute zero either, rather the vacuum had a trace, resh means trace, of divine light. Judgment, what does that mean in our text? The quality of limitation definition, lexor din, you do gizar din, you are gizar means to cut, you're cutting the, the law. So, judgment, the quality of limitation dimension, without which nothing could exist as a separate entity. So, judgment, he really means over here, to define and limit. Because if you don't have definition and limitation, you have nothing. You need to have definition and limitation. Back to our page. Then all the opacity and density of judgment, judgment means of limitation. Then all the opacity and density of limitation and definition within the light of the insof was extracted. Setting into the vacuum, it transformed into an amorphous mass, footnote, golem. An amorphous mass means golem. See Moshe Adel, golem, Jewish, right, where the word golem was the original stuff of creation. From, it transformed. 
Well, no, what descended? Descending into the vacuum, it. What descended? So you say the whole night, Hashem, Hashem, five times already. That's what it is. That was my. I have a question mark there. Well, let's look at further. I, I had the same question, which is why I put a question mark there. It seemed to have been God, but. <laughs> no, a few others. So I'm going to reveal to you. That's like it's healing. Out of this mass, okay, so it, whatever it is, transformed into an amorphous mass, surrounded in every direction by the light. Out of this mass emanated the four worlds. Kabbalah, of course, you all know, has four worlds. And your Siddur that you pray from mentions that when you start by Rosh Hashanah, you go to Ulama Asiyah, Ulama Yitzira, Amidaz, Ulama Atzilut, and then Ulama Abiriyah in between. You have Ulama Yitzira, Asiyah, Biriyah, and Atzilut. The highest palace is Atzilut. And you, in Tefillah itself, you go from stage to stage to stage to Atzilut, and you go down, 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 down. Which is the reason why the Kabbalists will tell you to come late to Shul, don't jump into your tzir. Halachas will say, jump into your tzir. You want to pray your tzir and the Amidah with the Kahal. Kabbalists say, don't jump. Why not jump? Because you can't jump from one world to the other. Therefore, go slowly and then Sabbath of Shamat, Asher, Haluyah 3 and 5, Ishtabach, then you're ready to go into Ulam HaAtzilut. And even what you missed, be careful about saying later. Right. So there's a problem with that. So the Kabbalists are very, Mitaktik, are very concerned about that particular issue in Tefillah. So, and this mass emanated the four worlds, emanation, creation, formation, and actualization. For in its simple desire to realize its intention, which to be God, it, the emanator relumed the mass, the ray of the light withdrawn at first. Not all the light, because if it had all returned, the original state would have been restored which is not the intention. To fashion pottery, now in metaphor and image, to fashion pottery, allness, God's allness. Uh Right. That's God's, we don't want allness, we want a vacuum, we want to create. Mm -hmm. That's the divine intention. To fashion pottery, the potter first takes an unformed mass of clay, puts it in his hand inside the mass to shape it. Puts it in his hand. Yeah, so you put your hand inside to shape it, right? The way your mother makes kibbeh. Finger and and, and shapes the kibbeh around the finger. So the supernal emanator put his, his hand, its hand, into the amorphous mass that is a ray of light returned from above. So God is ray of light shaped. As light began to enter the mass, vessels were formed. The purest light, Keter, next, Chokhmah, then Bina, and so on through all the things which you have the image and your map of creation. Keter, Chokhmah, Bina, and so on. Through Da'at, etc. Since Keter was the purest and clearest of all the vessels, it could bear the light within it. Rochman and Bina, though more translucent than those below, were not as translucent as Keter. And having this capacity, their backs broke. This is called Shivirat Kelim. Famous Kabbalistic idea of Rabbi Hayim Vital or Rabbi Ashkenaz Vesek Luria. Their Shivirat Kelim. Their, the back of the, the utensils which were trying to hold divine light their backs broke and they fell from their position if you ask the Kabbalists you mean this literally they will tell you no not literally it's only a metaphor to explain creation <clears throat> what does it mean as the light descended further six points appeared six fragments of what had been one point of light as the vessels shattered the spiritual essence the light ascended back to the mother's womb while the shattered vessels fell to the world of creation. Footnote, page 195. Yes. 
Exactly. Okay, now look page 195. Imagine creation on these four worlds and so forth and so Okay, good. Mother's womb corresponds to Divine Mother Bina. There is much feminine imagery in the Kabbalah itself. Shekhinah, a rabbinic term, is masculine or feminine? Feminine. Feminine. So therefore, the Kabbalah does in fact play upon feminine imagery as well. So what is the Divine Mother Bina because it gives birth? Yes. Well, the shadow vessels fell to the world of creation. Now, now we need Tikkun. When the light emanated once again, regenerated, arrayed anew, it extended only to the end of the world of emanation. Emanation denotes this extension of the light of the Ensof during the time of regeneration, when it came back again. Emanation consists of five visages. These visages are reconfigurations of the points of light capable now of receiving the light so that no shattering occurs at first. Below these visages, the light of itself appears only through a screen as you sit in the shade. Though the sun does not shine on you directly, it illuminates the shaded area. In a similar manner, the light of the itself illuminates the world of creation through a screen indirectly. The screen of the utensils. So, we generated a new, in Hebrew, if you look at the footnotes, just to finish them, Hebrew, betikun. Tikkun means mending, repair, restoration. First, the process of repairing the shattering of the vessels. Green is your mind. Okay, good. Okay, I hear that. It's a good point. Yeah. So the end of the world of emanation, the last ten sefirot. The end of the sefirot, which is malchut. Why is it called malchut, the last of the worlds of emanation? Because Hashem then rules over the world. Malchut is God's kingdom over the world. Right? Your sword would be foundation. Then malchut. Okay, good. Visages, the Hebrew in the original was partsufim. What does partsufim mean? What's the partsuf? Face or image. Patsuf is a face or an image. Faces, aspects, configurations, gestalts. These five visages manifest distinctive aspects of divinity. Aspects of God. Patient, one. Let me just give you the next page. It's on page one, page 196. Correct? But notice. Yes. Which is right over here. 196. 196. 196. 196. Patient one. So this is what this is. Erechapayim, father, mother, impatient one. No say I want to and feminine. They correspond respect to the following sefirot. Kedroch ma'abina teferet. And the five sefirot surrounding him: Chesed, Gibura, Netzach, Chod, and Yisod, and Malchut. So that let's leave that aside for for now because it's pretty complex stuff. Okay, so the Rabbi Chaim Vital Tzimtzum Shvirat Kelim withdrawal and shattering. At the end, what happens after the shattering? There's withdrawal, but then there's a regeneration of the light back into the reconfigured utensils to ultimately bring back to the end of emanation, which is Malchut, to ultimately be able to bring the world into existence. Right? So the question, of course, you want to ask is not only where does the Kabbalah get this from, why does the Kabbalah say all this? It almost implies the world is not perfect. And this actually will fill in, and this is the flaw and fault of what we're doing right now, what I'm doing right now, what you're doing right now, is that we're only getting a slice of the Kabbalah. Only get a slice of an intricate connected system where ideas really connect to each other. Their whole of mitzvot is related to the Shivat Kelim and the way that one can help mend those Kelim and unify Shekhinah, which we said last week. Leshem Yehud 
When you pray, when you do mitzvah, in order to unify God and the Shekhinah, the feminine, male and feminine, male and feminine aspects of it, you want to unify. So you do a mitzvah to unify. Reuniting and, and uh, parts of God, you know. It's hard doesn't to. Doesn't it um, sound like it a bit? The person doesn't really understand if, it. Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, I would say that if one doesn't understand it, you're right. That's the problem with why one should not study Kabbalah. So one is understanding it all in one in one uh, sitting, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You can't. You're right. If instead just bits and pieces of it, it can sound pagan. Absolutely correct. But that's the problem when you just do one section of it. You're not seeing how the tentacles reach out and capture other ideas which validate the original idea. So the notion of mitzvot, we're only looking at this because it's part of creation. But this might be born out of a philosophy of mitzvot doing, which was necessary to explain why you're doing mitzvot. So one has to just remain, admittedly, with all kinds of questions till one reads the whole book and one sees all the implications of it, then one can evaluate and see what it's really all about. Let's try to look at one more page. We only have one or two more to look at mind. Okay? That's on page 96. Do you have 96? Okay, here's 96. One. Okay, now, we want to first, this is from Nabi Azariah Defano, very famous Pusek Halacha. Kamal Yosef quotes him all the time. 16th, 17th century, right? He as well was a Kabbalist, which you don't always know. And he makes the following point. Supernal vacuum is like a field in which are sown ten points of light. Ten points of light. The number ten always shows up. Light always shows up. Just as a grain of seed grows according to its fertile power, so does each of these points. And just as a seed cannot grow to perfection as long as it maintains its original form, because if it's always a seed that didn't grow, mm-hmm. just to grow out of its original form, growth coming only through decomposition. Interesting idea. Exactly. So these points could not become perfect configuration as long as they maintain the original form, but only by shattering Shavira. So here we have, all of this is part of the divine plan of creation. Ten Sefirot in an open field that's going to shatter the seeds. The Zohar itself had used the word seeds of creation. Right? And once you have Shavira, once it always broken, then it breaks through its original form of a seed and it grows into but why is the, the system almost uh, like affirmation by negation? Uh, um, creation by negation. Why does... Because uh, God is all. Use that? Cause it's, so cause why negative for positive? Because you don't it's have... trying to come back up, to come down. Okay, good, good. Because you can't... What does it do? It, it, well, the latter examples mean? mimic the former example. The example of Mitzrayim, etc. is Aliyah L'Torech, Yeridah L'Torech, Aliyah. Why to go down to go because up? Because we're imitating God in that context. That's what God did. Why did God do that? Because the infinite is all. The all cannot create a finite world in the allness. If allness is all, uh, all. Right? So he created a negative to make it positive? Tzimtzum is a negative. It's a so contraction. It's a negative, yerida. So the yes. negative is not him. Correct. It's a yerida. have to strive to merge with him. Right. To and to aliyah. You do yerida, surah aliyah. Exactly. You're imitating God in that sense. God himself went through this process of yerida, surah aliyah. And if one wants to do it that way. Okay, look, let's look at page 97. Wow, that really is a, a, a map image. Why can't I live in the palace? No, 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 no. 
Now the point is that the peasant. No, I want to fine tune your image. I think it's a good image. So the point is that we could not live in God's palace. So the peasant can right. The peasant cannot live with the glitter of the palace. The king loves the peasant. He wants to give him something. So the king is so good and kind and loving. He knocks down the palace. A wing, okay, right. Quarters, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I like it. It's good. Because you cannot live with the allness of God. It can. Analogy comes from. Right. 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 Look now for page ninety-seven. Just want to finish one or two more pages. Traces of the light adhere. This is from Isaac Sirug, seventeenth century. Traces of the light adhere to the shards of the shattered vessels. He builds on the earlier concept of the of the Bishakluria. This may be compared. This thing, right? The snow. This may be compared to a vessel full of oil. If it breaks and the oil spills out, a bit of the liquid adheres to the shards in the form of drops. Like was in our case, a few sparks of light adhered to what? To the shattered vessels. When the shards ascend to the bottom of the worlds of actualization, so the world's not going to be created and you're going to have actualization, they were transformed into the four elements. Interesting, the nitsotsot. Nitsotsot means sparks. In Kabbalah, as well, the word nitsotsot plays a very prominent role. Sparks strewn throughout the entire creation. So here he says to us that these shards descended to the bottom of the world of the they were transformed into the four elements, fire, air, water, and earth. So everything that surrounds you is divinity. Sparks of godliness. Yeah? With me? Okay. So it's an interesting step ahead. He was saying that these sparks of divinity, of light, God's light, were transformed to the four elements of fire, air, water, and earth, from which evolved the stage of mineral, vegetable, animal, and human. What is, this, what is this? Right. Yeah. So this solves our problem where God can be part of everything. The, the lights are part of everything. Mineral, which is inanimate objects, vegetable, which is animate, animal, and human are all contain shards of or sparks of life. Could that mean that they were like atoms and electrons? Is that the only sort of thing? Too mundane. Yeah, yeah. We have divinity over here. You're yeah. putting it to a little atom. When these materialize, some of the sparks remain hidden from the var- varieties of existence. You should aim to raise. Now we have an activistic mm-hmm. position on the part of the Kabbalah. You should aim to raise those sparks hidden throughout the world, elevating them to the holiness by the power of your soul. It's a fantastic idea and concept. Take any inanimate object, a glass of juice, and you've raised it to the higher levels of the power of your soul. So the four elements form the base of creation. They're made from the light of creation. All is made from the same essential matter or sparks of creation. Okay, that's traces. And creative arousal. Interesting same. And this goes to page 197. Right? This is Rav Bachrach, Erech HaMelech, also a great Talmudist, Halachist. Right? And that's the 18th, 17th century. What does he say? The world could be created only by virtue of the action of the righteous. That's striking. What does that mean? The world could be created only by virtue of the action of the righteous, the arousal of those below, prior to those below being below, obviously. Right? What's he saying? Mm-hmm. Whatever that means. It's almost the divine idea that they will be below is what create, caused God to create. 
So therefore, God contemplated the good deeds of the righteous. Yet to be, they weren't yet created. And this act of thinking, so yet this raises the question, why is he saying this? He couldn't figure out why God created the world. Why would God create the world? So he created for the righteous who do the Torah. Mm-hmm. This act of thinking was enough to actualize the thought. But Hashem Shana, so when God thinks, it happens. God drew forth light from within himself and delighted himself with holy people like those who would eventually be. So they came. This joy, which is um, going beyond what we've been seeing so far, this joy engendered undulation, greater delight in the bliss of contemplating the righteous, of imagining holy people, in the fluctuation, the power to create was born. <clears throat> Whatever it means, it's nice. That's correct. Yeah, the joy of God... He thought of goodness, he thought of good people, and it became, so to speak, physical. Right. Exactly. Exactly it. So what did Rav he's, he's, he's taking he us... He needed someone. No, he didn't need... He was well, he he's enjoying the... the it's almost like a person, let's say. Let's look, look at this way. Let's say a person is um, thinking about... He just got married, right? And he's thinking about having a child. Right? What is having a child? He thinks about the fun, the joy. His sister has a child. He just came home from his sister. He's visiting his sister. He sees how wonderful kids are. He gets home that night and he's thinking of joy, of having a child. What does he then do? Has a child. He cohabits and has a child. The thought, the joy of having, of having, serving Hashem and becomes, let's call it an actuality. Exactly. Serving Hashem. What? So it's the thought. Hashem's thought is, God has no mind. You know, his own honor is serving Him. Right. Which is a striking concept. I right. Mean, exactly. Correct. That's a very interesting piece. What he said. Right. That's no, right. And he's a, he's and a halakha. Right. Or interesting. Interesting is there are two sets of kabbalists. You have kabbalists that are become what's called practical kabbalists who engage in all kinds of techniques and modes to achieve this divikut, and they they use all kinds of techniques to achieve that. And you have the halakha kabbalists like Rabbi Rachrach who wrote Emek Halacha. I think that's the name of his work. Very uh, deep halakhic work. The base of Cairo, who wrote, of course, our Shohan Aruch, was as well known to be a Kabbalist, in some sense, from Tzfat. So many of them had many of these tendencies of expressing their Kabbalah in halakhic forms or in more intense Kabbalistic forms. So that's that. And lastly, an epiphany enables the Shrav Kuk, 20th century. It's 20th century. So we go all the way to 20th century. An epiphany enables you to sense creation, not as something completed. It's an interesting idea but as constantly becoming, evolving. Of course, uses that term because he believed very deeply in evolution. Not simply as the evolution of a human being, but evolution as the form by which God created the world is in a constant state of evolving. Ascending. Evolving and yet ascending. Where do you see that? Because the creation itself began as a nothing and ascended through evolution to human beings. So therefore, of Cook says, 20th century, an epiphany enables you to sense creation, not as something completed, but uh, finished, but as constantly becoming, evolving, ascending. This transports you from a place where there is nothing new to a place where there is nothing old. Creation is a constant, ongoing process. What was yesterday is not what's going to be today. It's all new. It's all going on. Where everything renews itself we heaven and earth rejoice as at the moment of creation, which is an ongoing environment. So Rav Kook, of course, is again 
the last of the great Mekubalim of the 20th century. And he himself as well takes these themes of creation, evolution, ascending, seeing God's sort sparks all over, whose obligation is to free them. Of course, put that into practice, of course, as you well know, by going specifically to the atheistic kibbutzim, Shemel HaTzair, and breaking bread with them, and praying with them, or not praying with them, because they were atheists, just to try to rescue them, because Mashiach can't come until this whole entire process is completed. Exactly. So one has to go to them, go to them and rescue them. So Rav Kook did and was criticized for this wholesale by everybody, but he saw this need of bringing them closer and, and saving their Nitzotot as well. Which is again a standard, straightforward, Kabbalistic idea to rescue the Nitzotot, the sparks, even as they exist in the Shemir Atzair, non-religious, secular Kibbutzniks. Interesting point. So with that, we end our Kabbalistic portion of this. There's, of course, much more to speak about over this. One, his next chapter is the letters of creation. And the letters themselves became that which created. But we're going to next go into uh, Danny Matt's book and see how he tries to bridge this gap. Again, you won't find ideas that you're comfortable with. You'll see a little bit of Kabbalah, a little bit of science, how he merged them together. I think at the very least it is, is interesting. He's a responsible author. He's not somebody who's playing games with ideas and just trying to prove his point. He's a pure academician. His goal over here is not making you religious. It's not his goal. At all. His goal is simply to communicate an insight that he feels is valid. So we'll analyze it. We'll see. Is it valid? Is it not? Is it a worthwhile experience? I think it is. It's unlike those books that you read which utilize ideas only to make you religious. It's not his point. He's just going to communicate information and do what you want with it. Okay? Thank you. Thank you.